Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we try and solve the mysteries of certain extinction events in the past and today. Now, when we look at the history of the Earth, we've seen life's been around for an awfully long time. But life also has died off many, many times. And we're looking at today some of the different extinction events in the past and in the modern era, so what we can learn from them and help conserve species in the future. Now the Earth in its 4.5 billion year journey to get to today has had lots of different forms of life on it. We can date some of the earliest forms of life roughly to around 1.1-ish billion years ago. The first creatures we can see in the fossil record preyed on each other, ate, survived, flourished. But it wasn't really until the Cambrian explosion around 540 million years ago where life sort of expanded out in a whole huge diversity of shapes and sizes and forms. It's followed by a major extinction which, you know, wiped out a lot of that life. Um, For example, then we had the Ordovician Silurian extinction as well, where a lot of the small marine organisms died out when the Earth's climate and conditions changed again. That happened about 440 million years ago. Then the Devonian extinction happened when a lot of species that sort of survived in these small shallow pools of tropical water all went extinct around 365 million years ago. Then there was, of course, the Permian-Triassic extinction, which pretty much wiped out a huge, huge portion of all life on Earth. Got to around 95% of all species were wiped out of that extinction event. Incredibly significant, including lots and lots of vertebrates. We recovered from that. We had the Jurassic period immediately following that, the Triassic Jurassic extinction, eventually happened around 210 million years ago, um, which the wiping out of all the other species there made room for dinosaurs to appear and flourish in the late Jurassic through to the Cretaceous period. But as we know, at the end of the Cretaceous period was what's referred to as the Cretaceous Tertiary Extinction or the KT Extinction. And that happened around 65.5 million years ago. At that point, all the dinosaurs were wiped out, so to speak. Just as a note, we are, as some scientists would debate, in the presence of the Anthropocene extinction, where humans are wiping out species of animals, uh, and we have named that term, um, technically also called the Holocene, because that is the geological era that we're currently in. But either works. One suggests a human-based cause, the other just sets an error-based cause. Um, but we are wiping out species with any mass extinction events, more or less today, as our climate changes. But coming back to the dinosaurs and the KT extinction event, it's the one that you probably are the most familiar with, the image of meteorites hitting the earth and wiping out all the dinosaurs. And that's certainly true. But a new fossil from 66 million years ago, discovered by researchers including people from University of California, Berkeley, in a fossil site in North Dakota, contains a whole treasure trove of animals and plants, all killed and buried within an hour of the meteor impact at that specific site. These is one of the richest KT boundary sites ever found. It literally shows the encasement of these creatures and burial from, more or less, the impact of a meteorite into the Earth. This is an incredible discovery out in North Dakota. The theory of an asteroid impact leading to the KT extinction was really popularised and theorised by a number of researchers, including researchers Mark Richards and Walter Alvarez, who were involved involved in the UC 
Barclay campus. Um, they formalised this idea 40 years ago that a comet or asteroid impact caused the mass extinction. And the idea was based around the impact crater at Chisclip um, in the Gulf of Mexico, just near Yucatan. Now, that was a confirmation that, you know, a large asteroid or meteorite hit the planet. A key to the, the proving of that theory as well involves stuff discovered by Walter Alvarez and his father, Nobel Prize winner Luis Alvarez, who recognised the significance of all these iridium deposits that were discovered in these rock layers, particularly around the 66 million year old rock layers around the world. Now, the reason why that makes sense for a comet or meteor or asteroid impact is, well, if you think about that boundary extinction point, if a large asteroid, meteorite or comet hit Earth, it would have pulverised, melted the bedrock under the seafloor that would destroy the asteroid, but shot up dust and melted rock into the stratosphere, which would have carried around for months the entire planet, blocking out the sun, but also depositing all this dust all over the layers of the Earth at that particular point. And you can get a look at pretty iridium-rich dust from that pulverised meteorite, which would make a lot of sense. It also would have shot off a lot of things called tektites. Basically, these are chunks of glassy rock formed by the impact, bits of Earth, effectively, that have turned into glass that has shot up, launched into the air because of the impact. So if this large impact event, which we're very certain happened around the Chicks Club area 65 million years ago, 66 million years ago, leading to the KT extinction, how did you end up with, in North Dakota, a fair distance away, in what was then actually an inland sea? How did you end up with large fossil remains really tied into the exact impact? Well, it all has to do with a concept which is referred to as a sage. Now, we've seen in other major events, like, for example, the 2011 Tohoku quake in Japan. That was a magnitude 9 quake. But what happened is, it shook the Earth and led to a whole bunch of geological stress around, of course, around Japan. But all the way over in Norway, in a fjord, 8,000 kilometres away, standing waves six foot high were created about 30 minutes after the earthquake itself. And these are referred to as seiches. They're basically like not quite a tsunami because they're not caused by a single impact, but they're these kind of sand seismic events that carry through the earth, shake the sides of a large contained area like a ford or, a, or an inland sea, leading to these waves forming. Much in the same way as if you have your hand in a bathtub and you can make a sort of standing wave or you hold a piece of string and you shake it at the right frequency, you get a perfect little wave eventually forming. Now, that would have caused a pretty spectacular event. And scientists estimate that these seismic waves would have started within 9 to 10 minutes of the impact. So once a big asteroid hits Chicxiclip, after about 9 or 10 minutes, the whole Earth has been shaken and everywhere around it would have now started to feel these massive vibrations. They travel through the ground around 100 to 200 miles per hour. So, if you're standing there, not only are you being pelted by these glasses ferals, these tektites, but there were tsunamis formed by Chicxiclub, obviously around because it hit the water, spreading out everywhere, but also on far, far away places, the ground itself was so violently shook that well, of course, you are getting all these other waves, these standing waves, these seiches forming as well. And that has led to a pretty interesting circumstance, which is what these researchers were investigating. They were working together 
from a bunch of universities, including the University of California, Berkeley, the Palm Beach Museum of Natural History in Florida, University of Kansas, and other European institutions as well, including researchers Robert Palmer, Jan Smit, and Mark Richards. Now, what they managed to discover at this dig site is particularly amazing. There was a wall of water, this seiche caused, and it was around, they could estimate, around 30 feet high. And when that wall of water hit the, the mouth of a river, well, this big ocean full of water, or inland sea, carried with it hundreds, if not thousands, of fish, sturgeon, paddlefish, and dumped them onto the land. It also pushed the water all the way back up the river. This huge dumping of water and fish onto the land was then also bombarded and pelted with all these rocks raining down from the heavens around 10 to 20 minutes. Then another large wave happened and dumping even more fish and even more creatures and tree branches and you name it on top of each other. And you end up with this immense stack, a fossilized graveyard where just fish pile upon pile upon pile being dumped by these massive waves onto the ground. Tree branches, conifer branches, dead mammals, mosasaur bones, all being thrown in there, including a partial carcass of a triceratops. A whole bunch of small mammals, cephalopods, ammonites, also all in the one spot. It's like if you summed up the entire Cretaceous period and smooshed it all together, compacted it and squished it down and covered it with some tectites and layers of these glassy rocks raining down from the sky, you have a pretty much neat summary of what happened at this particular spot in North Dakota. This fossil ground captures almost beautifully the exact moment of extinction in all its terrifying glory. This is some great work done by a very large team of researchers to uncover this and piece together this murder mystery. This is the first time in research based around asteroid impacts and extinction events that you can have such a neat encapsulated summary that enables really to reconstruct the final moments of the Cretaceous period in great detail. There's some great work that has just been published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Now, it's certainly true that asteroid impacts, massive waves, and, well, human hunting can lead to extinctions of creatures in large numbers. But a recent paper published in the journal Science from Australian National University by researchers including Dr. Claire Foster and Dr. Ben Scheel have been investigating a catastrophe, a large extinction that's been happening right under our noses, so to speak, over the past 50 years. Now, Around 500 amphibian species have been seeing an incredibly drastic and huge decline in populations, wiping out large numbers and sending to extinction 90 species of amphibians, mostly frogs, toads and salamanders. And it's across 60 different countries, but the most affected parts are Australia, Central America and South America. And this massive extinction wipeout that's happening right now is not because of asteroids or human-based events. It's a lot more simple and scary than that. 
It's caused, as these researchers have discovered, a particular fungus. The disease itself is called chytridiomyosis, and it's found in, as I said, 60 countries. But really, there's tropical areas in Central America and South America, as well as Australia, so the northern part of Australia. And this disease itself is caused by the chytid fungus, which actually originated all the way back in Asia, where local amphibians actually have developed a resistance to that disease because, well, they had it around them for so long. But the problem is that thanks to globalization and the trading of wildlife and invasive species jumping continent from one place to another, it's moved this fungus and this disease itself from Asia, where people can cope with it, all the way across to Australia, not such a large jump then, but all the way over to South and Central America, which is a much, much further distance. And that has led to these species, which aren't prepared to deal with this fungus, being effectively wiped out. It's one of the most damaging invasive species worldwide, because it's literally wiping out many of these species, 90 so far, but still further of those 500, over the next 10 to 20 years, could face extinction as well, very high risk there. Now, obviously knowing which species at risk help us target and knowing which disease and what's going on there and trying to build up immunities in certain species that are at risk is possibility. But it's a bit hard because you can't really remove a fungus from an ecosystem. If you compare it to an invasive species like a predator, like a cat, well, maybe you can try and limit its presence in an environment to stop it from killing all the creatures. With a fungus, you have a much harder time trying to stop or control it. It's pretty much there to stay. And one of the challenges are that not all species are wiped out by this particular fungus. Some that are resistant are thriving in the space left by the other species going extinct. And... It's a challenge because those species that are thriving means they're carriers for the fungus and act as a reservoir. So there's almost a constant source then of that fungus in the environment. And that makes it incredibly challenging to try and manage and deal with. So how do you manage diseases like this spreading across the ecosystem in a globalized world? Well, moving plants and animals through the world is a potent part of modern commerce, but tight biosecurity laws is an another essential part of that. It's something in Australia that we are very keen on ensuring. Seems a bit pedantic sometimes when they make you throw your fruit out as you cross the border, but it's for a good reason. It's to prevent things like this. But nevertheless, we need to study and understand these diseases so we can help ensure that species aren't wiped out through globalization and the spread of diseases through fungus-based, for example, in this case, or others, from one safe environment where species have adapted to it all the way to another one. And this is some great work out of the Australian National University. Now in that long list of extinctions, one of them around 430 million years ago, during the Earth's Silurian period, was based around a mass extinction in the oceans and what was happening where all these small fossils like trilobites all died off all of a sudden in the ocean was a particularly strange event that has haunting parallels to the current day. In the Silurian period 400 million years ago, the ice sheets started to melt, which meant sea levels were steadily rising. Sound familiar? But also the oxygen in the oceans was changing 
and deoxygenating. And that leads to all kinds of strange things happening. Now, we've known from the fossil record that there were these mass extinctions referred to as the Rivikian extinction in some more or less terms. And researchers from Florida State University have been piecing together to try and find evidence for one of the things that caused that particular extinction. And what they developed, these researchers, including Seth Young, Andrew Kleinberg and Jeremy Owens, was they pieced together a mechanism, a way of actually assessing in the oceans 430 million years ago how much oxygen was present in them. Now, you might ask, how on earth do you figure out how much oxygen is in an ocean 430 million years ago? And it involves a pretty interesting strategy. Now, to measure such a thing, you need lots of samples, and that's not so bad. We can look at the fossil records and get samples from that long ago. So that part is okay. That's pretty standard geology. But how to assess the level of oxygen in that sample is a different story. And it had to involve development of a lot of stable isotopes, like carbon isotopes, sulfur isotopes, and iodine. And to use those as a dating mechanism, a three-way approach of a to not only date, but also test the oxygen concentration. And if you bring those three separate independent geochemical proxies together, you can actually get a pretty detailed look into the actual level of oxygen in the ocean at that time. They took some samples from field sites in Nevada and Tennessee, which actually, at the time, 430 million years ago, were actually submerged under ancient oceans. And they're from the timing point of the extinction event. They brought that all back to their lab at the Florida State University in their National High Magnetic Field Laboratory. And using their geochemical proxies using carbon, sulfur and iodine isotopes, they actually managed to analyse the oxygen levels. And what they found is that there was rapid deoxygenation of the water, particularly in these shallow water. And that led to, of course, reduced oxygen conditions. If there's no oxygen in the water, it makes it very hard for species to survive that need that oxygen as a food and fuel source. And this is the first time we've actually had direct evidence to show that deoxygenation or oxygen loss was one of the triggers for the Rebekian extinction event. But curiously, researchers found that the oxygen loss wasn't universal. What they found was that only about 8% or less of the global oceans actually experienced significant oxygen reduction levels. Some had little to no oxygen levels, but very high levels of toxic sulfide. So perhaps you don't have to deoxygenate the whole ocean to still, you know, remove a lot of species. But it goes to show an important part that oxygen plays in life in the oceans, but also extinction events. Because at the moment, we're seeing the same thing happen, more or less in some areas. Sea levels are rising. And ocean oxygen is hemorrhaging at an alarming rate in a, s a number of areas. And it doesn't have to be uniform to still wipe out a large number of species. So understanding the loss of oxygen and how it relates to extinction events in the past, 430 million years ago, has a lot of interesting implications for our current challenge against climate change. And this is some great work at a Florida State University published in the journal Earth and Planetary Science Letters. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From studying the fossil record to piecing back the puzzle of the deoxygenation of the ancient oceans to modern troubles and diseases from fungus spreading across the world, we found out a lot about extinction events this week. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.